democracy, terrorism and the rule of law, the international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11, 2001. Part 3, the impact of September 11th, the new law, Bill C-36. Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy, a documentary series examining the consequences of September 11th on Canada's legal and political system. My name is Khalid M. Safar. This is part three, the impact of September 11th, the new law, Bill C-36. Over the next two episodes, we will look at the new legislation proposed by the Canadian government to deal with terrorism and public safety. The panel, Terrorism and the Criminal Law, was recorded on March 25, 2002 at the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, organized by the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice. The conference asked the question, how is Canada changing following September 11th? Thanks to the CIAJ for making these audio transcripts available for rebroadcast. You can visit their website at www.ciaj-icaj.ca. Moderated by Professor of Law Louise Viau from the University of Montreal, the panel Terrorism and the Criminal Law focuses on Bill C-36, the Anti-Terrorism Act that is the centerpiece of Canada's response to terrorism after September 11th. Part 2 examined the historical pattern of Canada's management of security threats. The featured panelists suggested that Bill C-36 continues our national tradition of government overreaction and the violation of the civil rights of target ethnic or political communities under the emergency doctrine. That is, the federal government's constitutional powers to manage the nation and pass such laws as needed to maintain the peace, order, and good government of Canada. Bill C-36 is an act to amend the Criminal Code, the Official Secrets Act, the Canadian Evidence Act, the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering Act, and other acts, and to enact measures respecting the registration of charities in order to combat terrorism. It was introduced by the Liberal government on October 15, 2001 as part of its anti-terrorism plan after September 11th. The government's anti-terrorism plan aims to interdict terrorist acts and to investigate, identify and dismantle terrorist infrastructures and groups with the objectives of securing public safety and of preventing damage to economic activity by expanding the powers of law enforcement and national security agencies. Bill C-36 is at the heart of this national strategy. It defines terrorist activities and terrorist groups. It provides far-reaching investigative tools to identify and prosecute not only such entities, but those who knowingly support or facilitate, financially or otherwise, such activities. It creates new sentences and provisions for terrorist offenses committed in or out of Canada. It provides for preventative arrest, and it compels individuals with relevant information to provide that information before a judge. After a fall debate on the legislation and some amendments to the bill, Bill C-36 came into effect on December 24, 2001, and is now C-41 of the Statutes of Canada. In this episode, we present the panel presentation, Terrorism and the Criminal Law, which focuses on Bill C-36, the new Anti-Terrorism Act. Richard Mosley is Assistant Deputy Minister in charge of Criminal Law Policy and Community Justice at the Department of Justice Canada. He argues that the new Anti-Terrorism Act is the product of healthy democratic processes and that it is a valid exercise of preventative power. other material that does much the same thing which describes the content of uh, C-36. You could refer, for example, to the website of the Department of Justice for an objective, unbiased uh, 
account of what's in the bill. I do want to do um, two things though. One is I, I want to talk about uh, the process in which the bill was developed. I want to argue that I thought it um, was in fact, contrary to the popular perception, a very healthy uh, process for our society. And in fact, in some ways, better than the usual process in which criminal law tends to be made in this country. Um, the second point I want to make, and it's, it's outlined perhaps a bit more in my paper, is that I very much um, uh, argue that C-36 is a valid exercise of the preventative aspect of the criminal law power and should be seen in that respect. Well, speaking first about the context in which C-36 was developed, in my view it very much reflects the global consensus that has arisen around the legislative measures that are required to deal with terrorism. Canada has fully supported the international efforts to deal with this problem and well in advance of the events of September the 11th had signed all 12 of the UN conventions and ratified 10 of them. We had also participated in the ongoing efforts to develop a comprehensive anti-terror convention at the United, uh, United Nations. Efforts were and are continuing in the context of the G8 group of nations and also the Organization of American States, which had created a, a committee known by the uh, Spanish acronym SICTE to develop an instrument for the Western Hemisphere. And in fact, that committee met again in January and uh, ministers of uh, justice and ministers responsible, attorneys general of the Western Hemisphere met uh, just two weeks ago in Trinidad. And if I may be permitted just an aside with regard to uh, that particular meeting, I was very proud of our Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada at that meeting because in the first round of statements on the nature of the problem and the need for governments to respond to it, for states, the member states of the OAS to respond to it, uh, Mr. Cochon was the only Minister of Justice or Attorney General who stressed the need for a balanced approach to the problem and that the legitimate security needs of society had to be balanced with respect for the human rights of the individual. Now, as my paper indicates, work had begun on implementing the two conventions um, that Canada has signed but not ratified, those dealing with the suppression of bombing and the suppression of terrorist uh, financing. The work on the financing convention had not progressed past the conceptual stage as of September the 11th. A great deal of work had also been done on uh, reforming, uh, reconstructing the Official Secrets Act uh, it's been going on for several years in fits and starts, but a fair amount of that uh, work had been done as of that time. So certain of the elements of C-36 would have been presented to Parliament at some future point in time after September the 11th. I doubt, that, however, that the scope of the bill would have been as extensive had we not been faced with 9-11. In the normal course, there were extensive external consultations before the bill was tabled. That did not happen with C-36. Uh, and however, perhaps as a result of that lack of prior consultation, I would argue that it received even greater public scrutiny and parliamentary attention than it might have otherwise. I think in some ex uh, circles, at least, there was an expectation that the government would overreact to the events of September the 11th and the moment the bill was tabled, the, bill, the hunt was on to justify that perception. Our usual approach to implementation of the UN conventions was to identify any gaps in our existing law in respect of the subject matter covered by the instrument and to propose amendments to the criminal code to address them. Often, this included extension of our jurisdiction to permit the prosecution in Canada of someone who had committed an offense abroad that would be punishable in this country. And most of those changes adopted over the years are incorporated in Section 7 of the Code. In addition, amendments had been made to the Immigration Act over the years, and in September of uh, 2001, Bill C-11, the proposed New Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, and C-16, the Charities Registration Security of Information Act, were both before Parliament 
and both of which included provisions relating to terrorism. The amendments to the code and the immigration and charities legislation had not attempted to define terrorism or terrorist activities for much the same reason that no comprehensive definition is found in the UN treaties. The perception is and has been that it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to arrive at satisfactory definitions that would be broadly accepted. The UN process, for example, continues the last session, I think, concluded on February 22nd, and they still, as yet, have not arrived at a common understanding of the meaning of that term. Now, challenges to the lack of a definition have been successfully def defended in our courts, while we had been warned very clearly in the oral argument before the Supreme Court in the Surish case that were we to proceed to the next step of criminalizing the provision of material support for terrorism as opposed to making it a ground for inadmissibility to Canada, a definition would have to be provided. In the immediate aftermath of September 11th, as uh, those of us who had been attending the Minister's Conference in Nova Scotia scrambled to find ways to get back home, we began to take stock of the existing body of law, especially in the criminal field, that was available to the security and enforcement agencies. It took me four days to get back home, but in that time, colleagues had assessed the law in place and had began to analyze its weaknesses. Now, at no time has the Government of Canada ever suggested that we did not possess an extensive framework of legal tools to deal with major crimes. Indeed, the contrary was asserted by ministers in the days immediately following the 11th. Nevertheless, the conclusion was reached that our body of law, while sufficient to investigate, prosecute, and impose serious penalties on terrorists, at least those who could be apprehended after the event, was not adequate to prevent those terrorist acts from being committed by those who were immune from any general or specific deterrent effect of our laws. Moreover, that the loosely structured and cellular nature of terrorist organizations required legislation that would go after every conceivable type of support that could be given to their operations. In short, legislation that would help the security and enforcement agencies, if you'll pardon the alliteration, to disrupt, disable, and dismantle the underlying support networks. Thus, the broad definition of terrorist activity, the wide scope of the new offenses and the investigative hearing and preventive arrest provisions of the bill. C-36 was the government's lead in the Department of Justice was to develop a comprehensive and effective package that respected Canadian values in the shortest possible time. Now to talk a bit about the process of how this was done. For perhaps the first time in our experience, as opposed to having Human Rights Council perform a, a a challenge function at various stages of the proceedings, they were integrated into the teams that were working on components of the bill uh, practically from the very outset of that work. And they contributed very much to the, the policy development and to the actual drafting of the bill. So the human rights concerns were part of the, this process right from the very beginning. Another variation from the norm, because in our practice we would have gone to Cabinet with a memorandum after much of the work had been done internally and as a result of our consultations. But in this process, there was an active dialogue with the Public Security and Anti-Terrorism Committee of Ministers, that they focused on key issues as those were developed by the officials, council working on this uh, project. And we engaged in a discussion with the ministers as to how they saw the key components of this bill as they took shape. And very much part of that, in each of the documents presented to them, were the human rights considerations that had to be taken into consideration before decisions could be made on what the result 
uh, would be. Now, it's often forgotten that the Prime Minister, at the very beginning of the process after the bill was tabled on October 15th, made it clear that the government would be open to changes to the bill. Those proceedings in the House and in the Senate, which went on concurrently, involved extensive hearings and a great number of uh, witnesses. I know that Paul Copeland will take uh, take issue with that because of uh, the Law Union of Ontario apparently was uh, denied an opportunity to appear. But the committees themselves determined who they would hear from and they tried to balance the competing interests and to, and to uh, use their the time that they had available to them to best effect by hearing from as many uh, differing viewpoints as possible. Uh, while this was going on, uh, of course, there was a lot of debate in uh, the public. The government did respond to, the, to a number of the concerns about the bill, and amendments were advanced. In my view, this is not the end of the story with regards to C-36. Uh, you're well aware, I expect, of the sunset clauses for the two provisions uh, relating to police powers. Uh, the investigative hearing and the preventive detention provision. There is, of course, also a comprehensive review of the bill that will take place in three years. And to support that, the bill, the Act, contains annual reporting requirements on those two uh, provisions in particular. But those um, reporting requirements, I know there's a fair amount of cynicism about the value of annual reports. Uh, largely related to the experience over the years with the electronic uh, surveillance reports, which don't tell uh, you a lot about the use of electronic surveillance within our society. Now, I would argue that the reporting requirements for C-36 are very extensive, and they cover a lot of the uh, details that those who wish to know how is this being applied within our society would be able to get the raw data. And of course, Quantitative data in itself is not enough. For that reason, the Departments of Justice and of the Solicitor General working with the provinces will be developing a qualitative, extensive analysis of the experience with C-36 to support the three-year review of its provisions. The House of Commons committees can, of course, at any point in time over the course of the next uh, three years uh, while they are in session, conduct their own reviews of the experience with the uh, legislation. And I would also point to the civilian oversight mechanisms within this country. That is an aspect of the review of this legislation which I think is extremely important. Now, I just want to touch uh, briefly on the point that I made at the outset about the preventative aspect of the criminal law power. From the, the conclusion that was reached, uh, that the existing uh, law was not adequate to deal with the terrorist threat. And this is something which uh, we in the Department of Justice uh, believed, uh, conclusion that was reached based on the experience with the investigation and prosecution of these matters, based on the cellular nature of the terrorist organizations. The problem with the existing laws is in part that the inchoate offenses, for example, of, uh, of attempt and conspiracy uh, were developed in an age where this type of organization, where people who are committing the acts do not know the full story. They, they may be asked, as the, the quote from bin Laden suggests, to contribute just a small part of the uh, work that needs to be done to carry out the event. Uh, attempts in our law do not, you can't capture mere preparation by a criminal attempt. With a conspiracy, there has to be a uh, knowing uh, agreement to participate in the uh, common design. And with the partyship provisions, aiding and abetting, for example, there you have to have had the completed offense and they really only apply to extend liability to the individual in effect uh, after the fact. So C-36 was drafted with uh, that very much in mind, and if you go through the bill, 
clause to clause, you'll note that the language varies from the traditional approach to uh, the creation of the sp uh, specification of criminal offenses in that it was designed to capture the individual who is involved in the undertaking but does not know precisely how it is going to be uh, carried out. Um, as the Minister of Justice was often quoted uh, as saying, um, it's too late once they get on a plane. You have been listening to Richard Mosley speaking about the adoption of Bill C-36, Canada's new anti-terrorism act at the conference, Terrorism, Law and Democracy. His remarks were recorded on March 25th, 2002. Kent Roach is a professor of law at the University of Toronto and examines some of the difficulties and issues related to Bill C-36 and its definitions of terrorist activities and terrorist groups. Mr. Mosley's talking, uh, as the minister did, that once the terrorists get on the plane, it's too late. But I really do feel that that uh, underestimates the existing criminal law of attempt, the existing criminal law of conspiracy. If we had known uh, about what uh, they were uh, doing. And I, and I would suggest that's a matter that speaks to security, uh, intelligence, and surveillance. Uh, I don't think it can be seriously contended uh, that we would have allowed them to walk onto the plane and not have arrested them uh, for conspiracy to commit murder or attempted murder. Surely, uh, at that point, it was an act uh, beyond mere preparation, especially as the Supreme Court of Canada has interpreted that in cases like Deutsch. Um, second, uh, and, 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 and I have a sense that our existing criminal law, in particular the, the traditional principle that motives, political motives, never justify crime, was quite strong. And, uh, you know, we've almost gone to the opposite extreme about now uh, making motive an uh, essential element of the offense, of which I'll speak more to later. Uh, second, um, I'm still of the view uh, that charter-proofing, although perhaps not insidious, is not sufficient. Uh, and I say this for a number of reasons. Uh, the principles of the Charter are important, but they don't encompass all the values of our criminal law. Indeed, the Supreme Court has told us that several times. So the fact that investigative hearings may well be charter-proof because of use and derivative use immunity does not, in my view, uh, take away from the fact that they are a, a, a fundamental incursion on traditional principles of adversarial criminal justice uh, that we have long uh, held dear. Um, se second, uh, there is a sense that there is changing goalposts when it comes to charter compliance, particularly uh, in the national security area, but Section 7, Section 12, Section 1, in all of these areas, uh, the Supreme Court is becoming uh, more reluctant uh, to strike down legislation. Uh, similarly, claims of charter proofing from a government that has been extremely aggressive on matters of charter compliance, that they have pushed the envelopes with what has become known in Ottawa as in-your-face replies to the Supreme Court decisions in cases like Morales, Davio, and O'Connor, uh, also makes me less than content uh, with uh, um, the um, uh, claim about uh, charter proofing. Um, I also, uh, the idea that Bill C-36, because it is or may be compliant with the Charter, is not a law and order agenda, uh, also uh, does not uh, persuade me. It is, after all, about increasing powers uh, of the police and prosec prosecutors. Uh, I also think that uh, we should not allow experts, whether they be in the Department of Justice or in the law schools or anywhere else, uh, to decide 
decide uh, whether Bill C-36 was uh, wise policy. Uh, Arab Canadians, uh, Aboriginal uh, people, uh, the anti-globalization movement, uh, all of these uh, raised uh, real fears uh, that Bill C-36 uh, could be used against them. And I think uh, we should have listened uh, to those concerns even more. Uh, and of course, it will be the independent courts, uh, not the people on this panel, uh, who will decide whether it is uh, charter compliant. The point has been made in a number of the papers in this conference that what we have done is not as extreme as in some other countries, and uh, that is sometimes true. Uh, I think it is sometimes not true, uh, but in any event, um, uh, I think that uh, Canada should be uh, should aspire uh, to be a leader uh, in in respect for principles of freedom and democracy and sensitivity to the multicultural nature of our society. And then uh, finally, um, uh, there's much talk about the war against terrorism, and I will just ask two rhetorical questions: If it is a war against terrorism, who is the commander-in-chief and who is the enemy? The crucial provision on, in Bill C-36 is the definition of terrorist activities in section 83.01. Uh, subsection A uh, is fairly obscure and it has so far escaped much critical scrutiny. Uh, it provides that a terrorist activity includes an act or omission that is con committed in or outside of Canada uh, and has 10 subparagraphs incorporating various offenses listed in Section 7 of the Criminal Code, but only to the extent that they implement international conventions and related protocols. So these international conventions now, and they are very complex, I'm not an international lawyer, but most of them uh, seem to have over 20, se 20 separate articles detailing both prohibited acts of terrorism and procedural requirements are now in some ways incorporated into our Criminal Code. Uh, courts will have to disentangle those parts which effectively grant jurisdiction from those which provide essential elements of the offense. And the Supreme Court's decision in Finta suggests that that may not be an easy task. Um, so uh, the exact meaning of this part of the definition of terrorist activity is far from clear. The Supreme Court in Suresh has recently held that references to danger to the security of Canada and terrorism in immigration legislation was not unconstitutionally vague. The Code and International Conventions makes this part of the definition of terrorist activities less than transparent and does not accord with the ideal of an accessible and comprehensible code. It's ironic that the United Kingdom, which does not have a criminal code, has, has not had to uh, uh, have such a complex and clumsy incorporation of international conventions. Indeed, the unwieldy nature of this part of the definition may help to explain why it has so far escaped much critical scrutiny. In sharp contrast to subsection A is subsection B, which has, as Mr. Mosley pointed out, been subject to much debate and was amended after second reading in response to concerns expressed by many that it constituted an overbroad and chilling definition of terrorist activities that would capture illegal protests and strikes that disrupted essential public and private uh, services. Uh, despite these amendments, there are some concerns that remain. The first is the prosecutor must establish that terrorist acts are in whole or in part for a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause. The difficulties of requiring the prosecutor to prove motive beyond a reasonable doubt should not be underestimated. The motive requirement will make the writings, books, religion, and beliefs of an accused terrorist a central feature of their criminal trial and may make trials of accused terrorists more political than they otherwise would have been. 
Although the, although the exemption of pure expression of religious views probably makes the inclusion of motive uh, charter proof, it remains, for me, a disconcerting departure from the traditions of the criminal law that simply that motive is not relevant. Uh, motive doesn't justify crime, but motive is also not an essential element of crime. The prosecutor must next establish that the acts were committed with the intention of intimidating the public with regard to its security. Uh, This is a much broader definition of terrorism than in the UK's Terrorism Act 2000, which is restricted to attempts to influence governments or to intimidate the public. The broader Canadian definition defines security to include economic security and applies to attempts to compel persons i.e. perhaps corporations. Politically motivated crime designed to compel corporations or individuals to change their their behavior or which threaten economic security could constitute terrorist activities. Uh, the other definitions or parts of the definition are less controversial, the ones that relate to intentional causing of death, serious bodily harm, danger to life or serious risk to health or, or, uh, or safety. Then we come to the infamous uh, clause E. Uh, e refers to the intentional causing of serious interference or disruption of an essential service, facility or system whether public or private. The prohibited harm goes beyond threats to life, health, and bodily integrity to include the disruptions of essential services. Quasi falls outside the definition of terrorism applied in the International Convention for the Suppression of Financing of Terrorism and used by the Supreme Court in Suresh as a working definition. I would add, however, that the court uh, hinted that that perhaps he's fine. It said, Parliament is not prevented from adopting more detailed or different definitions of terrorism. But Parliament has gone beyond that definition of terrorism to include attempts to intimidate a population with regard to its economic security, to compel persons as well as governments or international organizations, and to cause serious disruption to essential public or private service. Now, there is an exemption uh, for protests and strikes, and it is now, thankfully, no longer limited to only lawful uh, protests and uh, strikes. Another feature of this definition of terrorist activities is that it includes threats to commit such terrorist activities. So if an expression of a political or religious belief or opinion also constitutes a threat to commit a terrorist activity, it would fall within the, the, def, the definition. Uh, it also incorporates other forms of inchoate liability, such as conspiracy, attempt, uh, counseling, or being an accessory. There is an exemption for armed conflict in accordance with international law, but again, it's unclear whether this exemption would apply to matters such as uh, Nelson Mandela's A, A, and and C. So that's the definition of terrorist activity, which is incorporated in many of the new offenses in Bill C-36. Next, I want to just briefly uh, talk about the definition of a terrorist group, which is also part of many of the new offenses in Bill C-36. A terrorist group is an entity that has one of its purposes or activities facilitating or carrying out any terrorist activity and includes an association of such entities. So far, so good. Much more troubling is the alternative definition of a terrorist group as a listed entity. This refers to a group that are listed as entities under section 83.05 on the basis that the governor general is satisfied that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the entity has knowingly carried out, attempted to carry out, participated in, or facilitated a terrorist activity, or is knowingly acting on behalf or at the direction of or in association with an entity referred to in paragraph A. And as Mr. Mosley points out in his paper, an individual could even be listed as a listed entity. 
one concern here is that Bill C-36 would seem to require a judge in a criminal trial to accept a listing decision by the governor general and council as definitive, even though there might still be a reasonable doubt that the listed entity is in fact a terrorist group as required in the criminal offense. The listing is an administrative measure and is reviewed as such, and and in my view, it should not be definitive for the purpose of the criminal trial. A somewhat similar argument was made by Professor Noel Lyon that the declaration of the FLQ as an illegal organization in 1970 was an unconstitutional legislative assumption of judicial power. Professor Lyon's arguments were rejected in 1971 by the Quebec Court of Appeal, but today there would be a serious argument that acceptance of the administrative decision to list a group or an individual as a terrorist group uh, is not sufficient to establish an essential element of the criminal uh, offense. This would at least violate the presumption of innocence, and then the issue would be whether it could be justified under Section 1. Now, my time doesn't allow me to go through uh, the rest of the offenses that are, that are, that are set up in uh, Bill C-36, but I think these are the crucial definition uh, uh, features. It is true that uh, Bill C-36 does not make uh, membership in a terrorist group uh, a crime, uh, but it does make uh, participation in the activities of a terrorist group a crime. And does come fairly close to prohibiting uh, the status uh, of being associated with terror. Uh, I would also add uh, that uh, there are a number of other new offenses created, such as mischief to uh, hate-motivated mischief to religious uh, property, uh, failure to enter into uh, a a reconnaissance. Uh, Finally, uh, there are provisions uh, for increased punishment for terrorist offense, including a mandatory uh, consecutive sentences. Again, in the wake of September 11th, uh, this may may seem uh, unobjectionable, but if something at the periphery, uh, something a lot less evil than what happened on September 11th, you could see a situation where judges, uh, by being required to impose mandatory consecutive sentences, uh, may actually impose a sentence that is unduly harsh. And again, Section 12 of the Charter, in light of recent Supreme Court of Canada decisions, is not likely to provide relief uh, from uh, mandatory uh, punishment. So in conclusion, uh, the debate about whether Bill C-36 was necessary or wise is over. It is now a fundamental part of our criminal code. Uh, I have suggested that the present jurisprudence under Section 7, 12, and 1 of the Charter uh, means that most direct Charter challenges to the new offenses and punishment, whether on the basis of vagueness, overbreath, failure to require fault, unreasonable infringement of expression, or the imposition of cruel and unusual punishment will probably fail. Nevertheless, courts should interpret the new offenses in a manner that requires the prosecutor to prove subjective fault in relation to all of the aspects of the prohibited act and requires the prosecutor to establish all elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt without reliance on an administrative decision to list a group as a terrorist group. Time will tell the extent to which these new offenses are used in prosecutions and their efficacy. The requirement to prove political or religious motives and the combination of various forms of inchoate liability uh, may make the prosecutions under these new offenses unwieldy. Nevertheless, to return to where I started, it should be remembered that the criminal law that existed before September 11th was strong and it may still be used to prosecute terrorists. It stands for the proposition that I believe is proper that political motive never excuses crime. Thank you. You have been listening to Professor Kent Roach speaking about the adoption of Bill C-36 and its definitions of terrorist activities and terrorist groups. His remarks were recorded on March 25th, 2002.
Don Stewart is professor of law at Queen's University. He argues that C-36 is a law and order quick fix, and he questions the justification for the new legislation. I left South Africa in 1966 as a law teacher uh, when I thought that apartheid would never be changed. What's the point of this anecdote? At the very time I left as a law teacher in Johannesburg, about 20 minutes away, Nelson Mandela was being convicted on a charge of terrorism. What had he done? Well, he'd, he'd renounced his nonviolent stance under the ANC and had participated with putting a bomb on a train tracks. The point of particular poignancy to me is that I was a law professor. I didn't know about the trial. I knew about the trial. I didn't know who Nelson Mandela was. Why? Because he was banned. I didn't know about the fact that when I was teaching whatever the hell I was teaching insignificantly in the law faculty at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, whenever it was, somebody said, Mr. Mandela, before we sentence you to life imprisonment, do you have anything to say? And he stood up and made a famous speech which lasted four hours with no notes and nobody dared stop him. And it was all about his vision of South Africa. I didn't know about that speech for the next five years. Why didn't I know about it? Because I was living in a, repress a repressive society which overreached with its, its police powers. It had an extreme value on secrecy and security. Um, when I arrived in Canada, like England in 1970, I arrived in Canada just in time for the proclamation of the War Measures Act. Um, <laughs> Um, I heard a speech by Pierre Elliott Trudeau that any minister of justice in South Africa of the day could have been proud of. And it terrified me. If I'd had any money, my wife and I would have left. I don't show to where. Um, what happened, we know, in this province, we know there were hundreds of innocent people arrested and targeted under that enactment. I honestly felt that I made the wrong decision to come to Canada. Uh, as time went on, we realized the excesses of the War Measures Act. We passed a different piece of legislation, which had all sorts of mechanisms for the possibility of wrongful targeting, compensation mechanisms. 30 years later, here I am. I've spent my life uh, teaching and poking around the criminal justice system, prosecuting for a year. And I honestly feel, as we reach this stage with this bill in particular, a uh, criminal justice system is not the system that I was proud of. It, this is the uh, absolute end and a long, long process of slide into law and order quick fixes. And this is not something that Canadians should be proud of. Um, in opposition to you, Kent, a little bit, I don't think the debate is over. I think the debate is, should be continuing. It uh, was started over the time of the passage of this bill. It calls for a review. I think the uh, parliament should be held accountable for this bill. There should be every effort made to make sure that uh, uh, the, the use of this legislation is documented. Uh, Rick, we've had uh, three months of the implementation of this Act, and your department's talking about creating mechanisms to report what's happened in the last three months. Um, anyhow, uh, I, I think my, my, my uh, vehemence and um, passion develops from the fact that I do come from this background, so that's why I wanted to start that way. Now, uh, with that absolutely horrific event on September the 11th, I found myself, as we all did, much more vulnerable in my own personal space, my own personal children, my family, um, and I started to support all sorts of things. I even supported the uncomfortable war in Afghanistan. Um, I wanted our, our government to act quickly. With, uh, if there, there was an antidote to um, anthrax, let's get onto it. If Alan Rock screwed up the trying to find the antidote, that's all right by me. Let's do it quickly, make mistakes. Um, but but as, as we go along, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder. I mean, when we see ships sailing out of Halifax, now, at this stage of the war in Afghanistan, where are they going and what are they doing? And how much money are we spending on this? Um, I also found myself, and I still say it, um, with this kind of catastrophe, we could justify a huge expenditure of money which we're spending on more policing, uh, more prosecutorial powers, and more powers for, for CSIS. Uh, there was a crisis of intelligence in this debacle, and we needed to address it. Now, for the life of me, from the beginning, I have never this complex 100 and whatever page legislation would make any of us more safe or would make it any more likely 
that suicide bombers would actually have been intercepted. The intelligence, the legislation. We need, we need evidence and we need intelligence. But mammoth legislation overreaching state power like this is not going to make us, it will not make Canadians generally safer because it will be the biggest uh, Muslim and Arab Canadians, other minorities, refugees, people already in the immigration process. This uh, threat is very real. It's not surreal. Um, it's, um, it needs to be carefully looked at. Um, and so my, my point right from the beginning was we didn't need this legislation. I think Kent Roach and others have done a great job right from the beginning uh, going through uh, the present uh, criminal law legislation in terms of definition and uh, criminal law, uh, substantive laws, and I certainly agree that we didn't need it at all in that sense. Certainly, if we find people involved in preparing or uh, conspiring to commit terrorist acts of violence, they should be hounded, prosecuted, arrested, and sent to jail. But that does not mean that uh, when you produce blunderbuss laws and blunderbuss police powers, uh, when they're used, they're going to hurt people that are completely innocent. Um, now, this was the view of a coalition of more than 140 Muslim Canadian organizations presented uh, to Parliament in both stages. Uh, their concerns were real. They've already had uh, been uh, targeted, not necessarily by agents of the state, I think, but still they feel vulnerable. And uh, they started within the process where some of us, I only got a, a, a spot at the Senate stage. Some M opposition MP invited me. Uh, Law Society, Law Union not even considered. All right, but we were listening to the coalition and they asked uh, people to go slower, to um, reconsider the bill, reconsider the uh, definitions. Um, what happens? Uh, Rick, the process was not nothing to do with you, but the Prime Minister of Canada invoked closure, uh, stopped people who wanted to participate in this debate, uh, rejected all opposition amendments, every one of them, as I understand it, and there's just no way to stop this freight train. We had to make the American agenda of the legislation in place by Christmas time. That's what we did. So um, now, um, when, when Kent and others go through the definition, I, 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 I'm sort of suggesting that I don't want to go over the same ground, but you can't, because unless there's an effective definition of terrorist group, the whole thing fails. Everything depends on the satisfaction with a terrorist group. And um, I cannot believe the uh, obdurate uh, stance of the Department of Justice and the government to deleting the issue of motive. Um, everybody who's understood, as many in this room have done, is that it's a very bad idea to attempt to have a, a crime where you have to prove a motive beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't do it in criminal law for very good strategic reasons. Um, for example, if you had somebody who did a violent act uh, for no good reason at all, that anybody could determine, you're still a terrorist, but you have to prove under this law, political, religious, or ideological purpose objective of crime. Now, when the people who are directly affected, I'm not affected, when people like Muslim Canadians say, this is going to target us. I mean, you've got, the idea was, we've got to keep this definition in to make it narrowly targeted. I think at one stage I looked, I couldn't find it, but I believe that the minister, Anne McClellan, at one stage said, well, if we take out that definition, uh, what will happen? So, for what what laws could be used against people who don't have political, religious, or ideological purposes? And I've, been, I've looked hard; I haven't been able to find it. That I believe I heard it maybe it was on television. Say, well, the normal criminal laws will do it for, for the others. Well, if the normal criminal laws will do it for those without religious, political, and ideological purposes, that means that it was this law was needed to talk. Um, now, uh, so we not only is there a possibility of racial targeting; it's required under the definition of going after anybody with a terrorist group. Now, the, um, the person who demands great respect in, in this debate is Erwin Kotler, who took on his own party and attempted to get it changed. He got six out of his position withdrawn. He wanted the Clause E withdrawn, and we've still got it. So but now sort of a, there's, there's a fair attempt to exclude protesters, but it doesn't exclusting disrupting essential services with an intent to cause a serious risk to the safety of the public. Well, if you just think of some of the high-profile protests we've had recently, it's a question of who caused the risk to the public. Was it the police or was it the protesters? It's not going to be too difficult to establish that. Um, so, um, 
Now, the other thing that uh, Kent uh, briefly suggested too was, so if you, I, I believe, and many people believe, and will completely not listen to, that uh, this definition, the key orienting definition is too wide and is dangerous to civil liberties. Secondly, quite apart from that, of course, the other way you can get implicated and targeted is by being put on the list. Now, I remind you, and you all know the, the terms of this, this is a list uh, uh, compiled by the Solicitor General of Canada. It's a list compiled in private, without public debate, and just merely based on reasonable grounds and proof in a court of law. That is in no sense at all a conception that I have or anybody has of the rule of law. Um, and uh, there is, forcibly, I think, there was an, there's some review uh, by judges, but a very limited one. And so I think that that would be challenged. The problem here is that, and this is typical of recent criminal law amendment definition, the way it's presented to the public, it sounds perfectly reasonable. So, for example, if you deal with the offense of knowingly participate in a terrorist group, it says, background it says, as an example, knowingly recruiting into the group new individuals for the purpose of enhancing the ability of the terrorist group to aid, abet, or commit indictable offenses. Who could be opposed to that? Well, the trouble is, when you actually look at the legislation, it's, all those requirements are, are, are not required. They're cynically sort of legislated out. Now, Rick says it's because, well, there's the, this diffusive uh, arrangement of how uh, the terrorists in modern ages are uh, assembled. But still, you, you've ended up with extraordinarily broad definitions. So, for example, take the one that... Uh, Kent didn't emphasize. So we're talking about knowingly participate or contribute to a terrorist group. So obviously you're financing the group, whatever you're doing. Um, what's the definition of participating? Well, one is providing or offering to provide a skill or expertise for the benefit of or at the direction of or in association with a terrorist group. Suddenly many lawyers' groups said, that could be me. How could I represent a person allegedly connected with one of those groups? You just heard the Law Society wasn't allowed to even make their pitch, nor was the Law Union. And oh, by the way, when we're talking about lawyers, I want to make a point. Um, I think the criminal justice system is an absolute crisis right now. People are being more and more unrepresented for major offences. Legal aid uh, systems are in chaos, haven't been amended in Ontario since 1987. There's a greying of the profession, lots of uh, defence counsel in Ottawa, for example, are giving up practice, can't afford it anymore. And that's just the criminal bar. Now, then you get to the real heroes of the legal system, in my view, those representing refugees and Im immigrants. The, the, lawyer, the lawyers who represent the people who are most vulnerable are, are struggling to survive, let alone to be comfortably making uh, nice calculated charter arguments. It's not going to happen. There's a huge loss of balance. Uh, I don't think that eventually there will be charter, successful charter challenges against this legislation. This legislation was very carefully drafted by a group of very talented lawyers um, in, a, in a hurry, but they did a great job for making it what's so-called charter-proof. Now, uh, we, we've got into the folly, and this is Ken's point as well, into the folly of saying, well, it's, char it's, it's charter-proof, so therefore it's okay. This legislation is not okay it's very dangerous to vulnerable Canadians who are innocent. Um, and so that's the problem. The criminal legislation itself is too wide. Now, the, the, what about the, the police powers that were authorized in this Bill C-36? Well, in my view, they're dragnet and extraordinary. And again, we're not justified adequately. Um, on the issue of electronic surveillance, we have moved eons in distance from 1972 when we were told that electronic surveillance was an instrument of last resort. Um, in terms of one of the things we were told at the time, and Rick's mentioned this, anticipated my remark, which would be that we would have annual reports so we'd be able to see how much electronic surveillance is going on. Half a page, 500 authorizations or whatever. Took the Supreme Court of Canada to tell us after a while that, well, actually the consent authorizations don't even show up in the figures. So they declared that unconstitutional. We did not need, um, I don't, don't think, that there was any demonstrated need to extend electronic surveillance provisions. Some of my dinner companions last night from the Department of Justice, for whom I tried some of these ideas on and were totally ineffectual, said to me that, uh, well, there's some need for longer electronic surveillance. Uh, you know, the point here is that if you're using electronic surveillance, it's an extraordinarily 
important invasion of privacy, and it should be justified. If it's difficult to justify, that's part of the, the balance in a proper criminal justice system. Okay, what about the two special powers that have attracted all the, all the attention? First one is detention without charge, and here's the South African in me coming in. So first of all, we had to sort of read this carefully because it's headed reconnaissance with conditions. That sounds like a release power. Well, it isn't. It's a power to detain without charge. And as the Globe and Mail put it well, among slippery slopes, this is the Swiss Alps. In, in, in my view, uh, this was one of the most diabolical aspects of oppressive apartheid laws. We, for those criminal lawyers, and most of you are, would know that there's a balance that's been trying to be reached by the courts. Uh, Simpson, Justice David Doherty in that court says, well, maybe you can have detention on reasonable suspicion, but just for brief questioning. It's nothing to do with what we've got here, which is putting people in cells. The other part of it is that um, judicial com compulsion of recalcitrant witnesses. I, I honestly don't understand this provision. I just don't know how anybody thinks that somebody who is a suspected terrorist is suddenly going to give up when there's a judge in, in front of a judge. And our whole record of trying to compel testimony in the criminal justice system is one of failure. We're going to end up with sentencing people to jail for contempt till they answer the questions, and it's going to be awful. And the, the best example I think of is our power trying to deal compelling recalcitrant or recanting witnesses domestic assault cases to testify. We have abject failure. I don't know why in this context we think it's going to be any better. Now, it's true that these two powers, these extraordinary powers, require the consent of the Attorney General, but they are nonetheless repressive, and it's true that they're, they're, they're uh, more intrusive powers than other um, countries' laws on terrorism. Now, the other aspect of the bill that really uh, uh, gets me going is that um, there's a huge faith in this bill about un largely unfettered ministerial powers. Uh, a lot of this, there were forced changes of review. But um, I, I'm not comfortable with the Minister of Defence, no less, Art Eglinton, authorising electronic surveillance of international communications without having to go to a judge. That, to me, is a fundamental human rights issue which has just passed. Um, I'm unhappy with ministers of justice having powers to ensure, instead of uh, secrecy for national security reasons, secrecy because the information is sensitive. Um, and these are now, some of them are reviewable, and Kent has done a good job, he didn't go through it today, but there's going to be a sort of a ping-pong effect. You're going to have a trial going on over here, and then there's going to be an entry of a certificate, and then that's going to be reviewed over the federal court, and it's going to come back to the domestic court, and, and we're going to have a tussle. Uh, not a very wonderful scheme, I don't think. Well, the box that I'm talking about is a Canadian police cell, or a detention cell for an immigrant or a refugee, or the home of an Arab Canadian when somebody comes to the door and says, we've got a tip that you're involved in terrorism, we'd like to talk to you. Um, that's the box. There's nothing existential about that. Uh, the last point, and I, I'll take your message there, Louise. The, um, the last thing I would point, and I'm sorry I didn't have more time to suggest it, to talk about it, is... I think there's a real systemic problem here. I think that uh, what we have, what this, this bill manifests to me is a long escalating effort of law and order quick fixes. And I would use the, the uh, anti-gang legislation as an example. I think that uh, Parliament is very weak at reviewing itself. The first major application of the anti-gang legislation was the Manitoba Warriors trial, which on, on several occasions I've mentioned would be a fiasco would demonstrate that the anti-gang legislation was not narrowly targeted, uh, was counterproductive, had all sorts of ill effects. But what did we do? We just carried on extending that legislation. And um, I just uh, would uh, more or less conclude by saying that um, there are many of us who have been not just in this destructive role that I'm trying to play today, but, but have also been trying to prod. Um, w most of the criminal lawyers in this uh, would find it completely non-contentious to say uh, it's time to reform the law of self-defense. Um, this has been a debate for 25 years. So we have time to do these mega bills in quick order, but we don't have time to simplify criminal law. Another example would be, isn't it odd that uh, in the average domestic assault or sexual assault trial, we actually don't know whether you can use patent evidence of abuse 
some of the fact evidence and whether or not it goes in and what it can be used for. And we're still debating that. It's been going on for 30 years. It's high time that the uh, criminal justice system get radically simple simplified. Okay, Louise, honestly, my last conclusion here. Um, I've missed out a lot. Fine. Uh, that, so, um, my, con my conclusion is that the real problem with this uh, bill is that it's permanent unless people force Parliament review to be effective. And um, in the meantime, we should carefully try from various uh, people affected groups to try and establish the data because I do not trust parliamentary, uh, parliamentary review processes to actually assemble the data that will show one way or the other whether this legislation is as dangerous to civil liberties as I think it is. In, in my view, in this particular case, in an extraordinarily awful event, uh, this was a complete overreaction from the Canadian Parliament, and um, it's something that will stain our criminal justice system for a long time unless there's political effort to get rid of it. Thank you. Professor Don Stewart addressing the conference Terrorism, Law, and Democracy. His remarks recorded on March 25th, 2002. This has been Part 3, The Impact of September 11th, The New Law, Bill C-36, of the documentary series Terrorism, Law, and Democracy, which explores the theme of terrorism and the rule of law in context of international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th and the ongoing international campaign against terror. In Part 4, we will continue to explore Bill C-36 and other legislation precipitated by these crimes. I was Khalid, and this has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM. Join us next time for Part 4, Canada's Anti-Terrorism Strategy.